welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for single women considering solo motherhood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo motherhood coach and solo mum to a three-year-old daughter. Whereas series one of the podcast focused on making the decision to become a solo mum, series two is covering the process itself. Each week, I'll chat to a different guest to cover each step of the process of becoming a solo mum. In today's episode, I speak to Professor Susan Gollenbach, who is a Professor of Family Research, Director of the Centre of Family Research at the University of Cambridge. Professor Gollenbach has written the book, We Are Family, which explores through her research what really matters for parents and children. I'm a massive fan of her book, and so I was super excited that she said yes to recording an episode of the podcast with me. Susan Gollenbach, welcome to the Stalk and I podcast. Well, thank you for having me. No worries. I'm so excited to talk to you. Your book is something that I recommend all of my audience buy and read and understand. Um, so when I contacted you to ask if you'd come on, I was so excited that you said yes, because uh, I'm really excited to delve more into the topic. So before we get into it, do you want to just give a little bit of an introduction to yourself and how you got into this area of research? Yes, of course. So I run the Centre for Family Research in Cambridge and the centre researches all kinds of different families and it looks at some of the families that we're not at talk about um, that feature in the book but also my colleagues at the centre study more directly how parents influence their children so social emotional cognitive development and so on so the work is quite broad but the work that I do with my own team focuses on new family forms and by that I mean families that either didn't exist or were invisible from society until around the mid-1970s. So um, how did I get involved in this? Well it was completely by accident really. So it was 1976 and I just moved to London from Scotland where I grew up and where I'd done my first degree and I moved to start a master's degree in child development at London University. And just around that time, I happened to pick up a copy of the feminist magazine Spare Rib. And there was an article in it about the fact that when lesbian women and their husbands divorced, custody without exception was awarded to the father in preference to the lesbian mother. And that was purely on the grounds of the mother's sexual orientation, because in these custody cases, it would be it was argued, well, a number of things. Firstly, that lesbian women wouldn't be as nurturing as heterosexual women, but also their children would experience psychological problems were they to grow up in a lesbian mother family. And also, um, in these days, there was a lot of concern about children's gender development, because it was thought if children's gender development was sort of atypical for their gender, that that was, in these days, that was seen as a disorder. Of course, it's very different today. So I was reading this with great interest. And then, um, further down the article, it called for an objective researcher to volunteer to study the children because one of the mothers who'd lost custody of her child who was interviewed for the article said that she thought it would really help to have some objective research because 
the judges were making decisions based on the opinions of the experts brought in on behalf of the mother and behalf of the father. But there was absolutely no research data on what actually happened to children in lesbian mother families. So when I read this, I was very excited by it because I was interested in the women's movement. So it seemed to me a really important issue. But also, I was really interested in child development. I was just starting a master's degree in it. So I'm looking around, as one does for a topic for my master's project. So I thought I would so love to do this research because it just combines two of my you know, biggest interests. And it's a really important social issue. So I called the number and um, in the article, or I think actually in the, these days, I think it was an address. But anyway, it was an address in Cambridge and I either phoned or wrote. And the, um, the person, so it was an organization actually based in Cambridge called Action for Lesbian Parents. And they got back to me and said, invited me up to come and meet the group and to talk about the possibility of me doing this research. And that's how it all started in 1976. It was just a really tiny master's project. And um, interestingly, it was very difficult to find someone even to supervise it because my lecturers in these days thought either it was terribly controversial, wouldn't go near it, or it just wasn't interesting. But there was one very nice lecturer who was interested and could see that this was you know, worthwhile topic, an important one. And then she took me on, but then by coincidence, really, I happened to meet somebody working with the child psychiatrist who was off, called in as the expert on behalf of the mothers. And then when he got to hear about the research, he, you know, he also felt there was a real need for proper research and helped get me a small grant to expand the study. And then it all took off from there, really. Wow. I mean, it's so amazing and so amazing to think about where it all started and where it is today and, the, you know, the role that you've had to play in that. I think for anyone who's read the book, I started on the first chapter and you just can't put it down because it is unbelievable to think about how they were treated and it's not really that long ago and where we are today is is phenomenal so yeah it must be super exciting for you to have been involved in that in that change and and help drive it really but great. when i first started i had no idea you know where this was leading i you know this was 76 so the first ivf baby hadn't yet been born it was two years before that and of course that was a real game changer in terms of the way in which families change. So, um, you know, I really had no idea where this would lead. Yeah, I, I actually heard this from other people who worked in the or in assisted reproduction in the very early days, and also that you know they were advised by their professors not to go into this area because it was very niche and nobody would be interested. Um, so, really, you know, those few of us who were interested back then had no idea. Um, how things would change so much and so relatively quickly. Well, thank goodness you did go into it. <laughs> That's a, it it's really great that somebody did. And, and so now we have this amazing research. So, so it started with the, um, with the lesbian mothers. What has it evolved to? What, what other things have you researched? Well, when Louise Brown, the first IVF baby, was born, um, of course, that 
led to different kinds of families, different ways of children being created. So there was IVF, of course, where children were usually in the early days were the genetic children of their mum and dad. But then donor insemination, which had been practiced for a long time, because of this sudden interest in fertility problems, then there was a big increase in the use of sperm donation to children back then in the early days by, by couple, heterosexual couples, um, although that changed, but in these days. So, and then um, so embryo donation became possible and then egg donation. So because I'd been thinking about the effect or lack of effect of different family structures on children, when families began to be created where either the mother or the father or both parents lacked a genetic link to their children, then that was really interesting to me because, you know, I thought, well, if sexual orientation doesn't make a difference, what about, you know, everybody assumes that being a biological child of a parent makes a difference. You know, what about that? Of course, we knew a bit about adoption, but adoptive children had often gone through, you know, very different early life experiences from assisted reproduction children. So then I started the first study of the first cohort of IVF children in, I was the late 80s by that time. And so I set up a European study with three out so it was the UK but also Italy, Spain and the Netherlands and it was the first psychological study of children born through IVF and we also included a group of families with children born through sperm donation which was the only option other option at the time and then we had compared them to families with adopted children and also children born through unassisted conception so that was the first study and then it didn't really answer some of the questions we were interested in because one thing we found is that the parents practically none in that first study had told their children about their conception and we were interested in the effects of telling versus not so we began another study um in the year 2000 and that study is still ongoing so these children we've been a lot of our research is longitudinal, so we keep going back and following the families as the children grow up. So with that study, which is just based in the UK, we have seen the families when the children were 1, 2, 3, 7, 10, 14, and now we're seeing them for the last time as they turn 21. So we've seen them all the way wow. from tiny babies up, up until adults. Um, and I can't wait to see the results of this last phase, but that, that won't be finished for another few months. So that study was interesting because by then more parents were disclosing to their children about their conception. And so we've been looking at that. And then that led on to other, other studies about, you know, did donor-conceived children show an interest, those who were aware, because... Many still weren't, but those who are aware of their origins, you know, how do they feel about being donor conceived? Were they interested in their donor? And we did, we studied that and discovered that a lot of them were really interested in their donor siblings, um, which was some other work we did. And then I also, sort of through these years, became interested in surrogacy because I was invited to join a government committee reviewing the law on surrogacy in the late 1990s. And 
as part of that, there were three of us on the panel. So there was um, Margaret Brazier, a lawyer, and there was um, Alistair Campbell, who's a bioethicist, and myself, a psychologist. And as part of that, you know, we held hearings, we spoke to a lot of surrogates, we spoke to families formed through surrogacy. And it struck me that, you know, all of the, there was a lot of negativity about surrogacy for all kinds of reasons. You know, some justified and others was really more to do with assumptions about things that were happening. So it seemed to me that this was quite a parallel situation to lesbian mothers in the early days because people were saying all these things about uh, bad things would happen to children born through surrogacy and there was no research. So we then, alongside this study I was telling you about that began at the millennium, we included a group of families with a child born through surrogacy and we've been following them up at exactly the same time so they're now 21 and able you know to talk about their lives so then I, that was how I got into surrogacy and then various other things happened so gay fathers so the law changed I think it was in 2005 where in the UK um, lesbian couples or gay couples could become the joint legal parents of adopted children and I think I can't remember exactly when that law came into force maybe 2009 but I'm not absolutely sure about that and then there were concerns um, particularly about gay fathers raising children because although by that time you know lesbian mothers weren't it wasn't such an issue but then for gay fathers there was this sort of additional layer of them being men and the idea that men weren't as suited to parenting as women and so on so at that point i was sort of asked to go and talk about this to the british association of adoption and fostering and we decided that we should do some research on these children as well so we studied gay dads and then Afterwards, we went on to do the first study of children born through surrogacy to gay fathers. We did that in the US. No single mothers by choice somehow came along the way. I can't quite remember how I got involved in that. But I think possibly through the London Women's Clinic, which was one of the, well, was one of the main clinics, um, one of the pioneers to offer DI to single women. And so... You know, we did that. All of this time, and I say we because my team was growing and it was nice that people, other people were interested in this. So it wasn't all me, but we, there was a whole team of us. And recently we've done an interesting study of children with transgender parents. Um, we've got some ongoing studies of co-parents, you know, people meeting without having children in the absence of a romantic relationship. We're also interested at the moment, we're doing a study of children born through egg donation with identifiable donors. And I've probably forgotten some of the other studies. But these are some of the families that we've been studying over the decades. And I mean, I think what um, what I always say to people, there is a temptation, and I've spoken to people who've done it, to get this book and to go to the Single Mothers by Choice chapter and read that. And um, I understand why people do that, but what I realised by reading the entire book cover to cover is the power is in the research you've done across every different family type. So um, for anyone who's sort of tempted to just read 
the single mothers by choice bit, you're sort of missing the point, I think, on the research itself, because the research is looking at all different family types and the impact. Um, so I really encourage everyone to read all of it because there's so much in common that you can see from all of those different things. I personally found it reassuring to my situation to read all of the different research and the different findings it, it doesn't matter that they're of course the single mother by choice is, is particularly interesting but but all of them had parallels i felt to any non-traditional in inverted commas um, family situation i think so i always tell people read the whole book i think i mean i think you're right in a way because when we began, we were just interested, you know, in, in lesbian mothers. But then as we started studying other families with different family structures, it told us something much bigger, I think, that, you know, people had always assumed that family structure really mattered, that for children to have a, a mom and a dad who they were biologically related to, you know, and anything that was different was bound to be bad and the more different it was the more bad it would be it just seemed to be people's assumption and because we've studied different kinds of families with different kinds of structures it doesn't just tell us about these families but it tells us more generally that the structure of families isn't as important as people used to think and really what matters much more for children is the quality of relationships in families. So not how it's made up, but what happens within the family and also the wider social world, you know, the attitudes around them and the experiences that children have at school in their community and so on. So I think putting all the research together over the decades has sort of led me to that broader conclusion about family structure. I mean, obviously it impacts on all kinds of things but it's not as sort of fundamentally important to children's well-being as, as people used to think. I totally agree and I think one of the things that I um, talk a lot with um, with the women considering solo motherhood is we grew up in a society where we you know the, the, the best way of doing it was meeting someone getting married having children that's what films showed it's what books showed it's what our parents did it's just what society expected us to do and i always say um that this um saying you know just because it could have been different doesn't mean it would have been better because um there's a presumption that if you did it that way it would be better than if you're doing it now in a, in a different way and that's one of the things people have to sort of get their their heads around and what's reassuring is when there's research that says some of those things are how we think it's important because that's how we've always done it but actually the research isn't necessarily backing that up I think that's very reassuring for people who are considering this route um, to hear really so could you just go into a bit more detail about what what did you find that was important um so yes I mean I think what we found fits very well with, I mean, there's a large body of research in psychology um, about what, what aspects of parenting, you know, are best for children generally. I mean, having said that, there's huge variation and, you know, children, as you know, are all very different. So what works with one child doesn't necessarily work with another, but there are 
so there's a broad consensus that some things generally are better for children and other things are generally not so good for children. So, you know, just in a nutshell, having sort of warm parents, parents who are sensitive to children's needs, um, you know, who are good at understanding if children are upset, what they're upset about, being responsive to them, um, you know, if they're, if they're upset or, how, you know, having different moods and mental states and so on. So being sensitive, being responsive, being warm, um, interacting with, doing things with them, just kind of, you know, day-to-day -day interaction. And also, as children grow older, being able to communicate well with children. So, you know, if they have problems, being able to listen to them, you know, showing that you understand their feelings and, you know, trying to help if they're having difficulties, that kind of thing. And also in terms of assisted reproduction, of course, there's this issue about, you know, openness about how the children came to be. And um, I mean, that's something our research has shown over the years is, well, not only a good thing, um, and that's not surprising because that's true in other kinds of families. So, for example, in adoption, people have known for decades that it's not good if parents are not open with children about their adoption. And some people say, oh, but sperm donation, or egg donation, embryo donation, that's different because these children weren't born into a different family or, you know, they do have a genetic link to one parent and you can't draw these parallels. And I mean, it's true, there are these differences, but there are also similarities. These are similarities that I think are important to children that, well, firstly, children can sense when they're not being told something, you know, if their parents change the subject before certain topics come up. So, you know, they do pick these things up. But we found in our research where we've been able to look at when parents have begun to talk to children about their origins. And because we've, because we've seen them so frequently as they're growing up, we've got fairly good you know, data on when that began to happen um, and other things to do with parents' communication to their children. And then we're able to look at the consequences of that as they grow up. And one thing that we have found is that parents who begin to talk to their children about their conception when they're very young, and by that I mean by age four, although some of the parents should start from, you know, almost birth before they can understand. And that's often a very good strategy because you never have this moment of having to sit down and tell your child. Um, but certainly those who had begun to talk to their children about this before they were four, we found that these children had better relationships with their mothers when they were teenagers. Now, it could be that this wasn't to do with the specific telling about their conception and that these could have been just more open communicative families anyway. But we did try and look at this by also including assessments of family communication and that didn't seem to make a difference it did seem to be about this issue of telling although you know research is never so perfect that you can tease these things apart but we did find you know these effects and that makes sense with what we know about adoption and other kinds of families the single mothers by choice the you know it's much more common for people to tell earlier because you there's a you know 
you have to tell, you have to explain the situation somehow. Um, and I always say, I did, I'm one of the people who sort of started from birth, mainly for myself more than anything to get comfortable with how I was going to tell that story. And what yeah. I always say to um, the women that I coach is, so some people are still working through the situation themselves a little bit and if they still have any elements of sort of shame and embarrassment about the situation that is likely to also go through to their children whereas if you're proud and confident and you talk to your child with that mindset that is much more likely to be how they then feel about it so I always encourage um starting from very very early so you feel comfortable with the story and so it's just the normal the normality of what your child grows up with um that's kind of how i do it and i i, I definitely feel like i got more confident telling the story because of that yes yes no, that makes a lot of sense and i've heard other people say that too so i think that's right and it is, yes, partly about the confidence as well. Um, you know, it's how you tell it. And it's also about continuing to talk about it. You know, for some parents, I mean, I'm talking, not talking about single mothers by choice here, but just generally, you know, they, they've had the conversation once and that's it and they never come back to it. And one thing that is important for children is to hear it more often. I mean, not all the time. You certainly don't want to ram it down their throat, but they need to feel comfortable about asking questions when they have questions. So they need to know it's not a taboo subject in their family. And so therefore, talking to children about their conception in a way they'll understand, you know, there's no recipe for how often, but just, you know, it's something that, if it comes up, it can be discussed. Children feel comfortable asking questions. That I think is what, what makes a difference. So it's not just, I mean, we, you know, we sometimes this does happen. Oh yes, we, we've told our child. Um, it didn't mean anything to the child at the time or they've forgotten, or perhaps they knew there was something but didn't really understand. That was something else that was very interesting about our research that Lucy Blake, who was somebody working in my team at the time, asked children who you know when the parents said they had talked to them about their conception and asked them to explain it to her and when they were seven I mean the stories were very sweet and very funny but the children clearly hadn't a clue the parents thought they did understand they really hadn't and it wasn't until they were about 10 that they were able to kind of give a more coherent account of how they've been conceived. And I so, actually always think that to myself because I think I've got friends who've got sort of 10-year-olds and my, I feel like my daughter understands more about the biology than they do, but of course she doesn't actually understand it. She's just reciting something I've told her rather yeah. than actually understanding it. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think children understand things very differently at different ages, don't they? So absolutely, yes. Those sort of milestone ages, and 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 it will be a slightly different version of the story, I guess, at different ages. Won't yes, they? and they understand more. You know, I mean, this is something that's been written again quite a lot about in adoption that young adopted children they can tell the story about being adopted and being born from someone else's tummy and that kind of thing but it's not till they're around six or seven 
that they really understand what you know that they they were born into a different family and, and you know all of these things so it's a similar kind of procedure with donor conception our impression is that children's understanding of donor conception comes a bit later because adoption is in some ways easier to explain and children understand about babies and tummies and all the rest of it but it's a bit more complicated to understand um donor conception so that maybe takes a bit longer but the other thing is that when the children are teenagers you know like for example if you take surrogacy everybody would say you know in the early days oh you know this is really not acceptable the children are going to be so distressed when they find out that they were born to somebody who then gave them away to their intended parents and we were able to ask the children in our study and they were a representative sample because the surrogacy families came through um, the Office of National Statistics. I won't go into all the details, but they were a very representative sample. So it wasn't just, you know, volunteers. Those who volunteered were the ones who were doing fine. And the children were, I mean, the main thing was just they weren't very interested. But certainly they weren't distressed, upset, you know, disturbed by all of this in the way that had been predicted. So, you know, well, well, there were 42 families in the study originally. Um, and I can't remember quite how many children we saw, but they, you know, we saw all of the ones who were um, quite a lot who were still in the study when they were 14. And there was one um, who was a bit unhappy about the situation. The large majority were just really not in the slightest bit interested. And there were a few who actually saw it very positively because it was something special or different about them. So, I mean, that to me is the advantage of research because people have all these assumptions about what's going to happen to children, but they are just assumptions. And it's only when you collect, you know, data as the children are growing up that you can find out what really happens. So, and and you know, that is honestly why I so strongly recommend people to read this book because they are dealing with their own assumptions and the assumptions of people around them. And when you've read the research, you can much more clearly articulate the facts from the research and I find it much easier to answer questions because I say oh but there's been research done on this and this is what the findings were and it's just much easier when you've got some facts rather than just dealing with people's assumptions. I yes. yes exactly so shall I say a little bit about our study of single mothers? Yeah mothers? please. So we, we did an earlier study which I won't mention because it was smaller um, but our largest study we first saw, I think there were 50 or 51 families. Um, so sing, there were single heterosexual mothers who had children through sperm donation. And then we had a comparison group of heterosexual couples who'd also had children through sperm donation. So they were, you know, the families were alike and the children had been conceived in the same way. But in one set of families, there was a dad than the other. There wasn't. And we first saw the families when the children were, I think they were around five or six on average. And then we followed them up when they were just, just before adolescence. Um, and in fact, the, that most recent, more recent paper was just published, well, just a few months ago, 2020. And what we found is that the children were single mothers in terms of 
all kinds of measures of their adjustment, the quality of relationships with their mothers, was really no difference between the single mother group and the two parent group. And we were also interested in what predicted problems for these children, because you know it's not that all children in all the families we study are doing well. You know, there's obviously a range as there are in any family, but what we found is that there was no difference in this range of problems. So we were also interested, well, for those children who did have more problems, you know, what predicted that? And we found that it was really the same in both family types. So the single mums and the two parent families, it was the same. So it was stress in the family, it was financial problems and things like that. Our children who'd been having problems themselves since they were very young. So, but it wasn't different from one family type to the other. And generally these were very well-functioning families. The difference was in the single mother families, I'm sure this won't surprise you, is that the children started asking about their fathers when they were very young. And this surprised some of the mums, you know, just how early, because some of them were about two and a half or three. And of course they could see that they had, I mean, not all of their friends had a mum and a dad, but they could see that some did. And so they would start asking about their dad. And so the mothers we spoke to, um, I mean, this was before there were people like you around and offering support and counselling and all of that. This was something that some of the mums did find difficult because they weren't expecting it to happen till a bit later. So they weren't quite prepared in how to deal with this. But I think, you know, as you said earlier, that the number of mums in this situation is growing all the time. So it's very different. There's more a community of support and people learn from each other and so on. But that was the one thing that sort of surprised the mothers, that just how young they were and then, you know, how best to talk about these issues. Yeah, and I think there's a couple of things to sort of say to my listeners about that because I think one thing for me is I had spoken to my daughter about this quite a lot and was really happy with the answers that she was giving because I said, have you got a daddy? And she says, no, I've not got a daddy. I've got a mummy, a granny and a granddad. So we'd focus very much on who was her family. So she Mm. didn't feel like something was missing. She just knew what her situation was. And she was almost like a little bit indignant that I, she was like, no mummy, why are you asking me that? I haven't got a daddy. But then to your point, I asked her again at a later date to, to see if her understanding was, you know, the same. And, and then she said, no, I haven't got a daddy. I want a daddy. And, you know, it, and it does, you're like, oh no, <laughs> she wants a daddy. This is awful. Uh, but what, my, what I rationalised about it was, you know, her little best friend has got a daddy. So she wants a daddy. Um, you know, absolutely understandable. And, and my, the way that I am dealing with it is to try to say, and she's too young really anyway, but to say, you know, what is it that you want? Um, because it's not necessarily that she wants a daddy. It's that she wants what? she wants her friend's toy if her friend's got a toy like she wants everything that her friend has got so um for me it's about understanding does is is she feeling like there's something missing and can I you know 
can she find that in another way? But I think one of the things that you said um, really resonates with me because it's quite easy to disagree with her, to say, no, you don't need a daddy, you know, and, and, I, and I don't think that's the right thing to do. It's about hearing her, acknowledging that that's what she's saying and that's how she's feeling and figuring out how to best deal with it. It can be tempting to, to sort of try to say that you don't need that, but let her feel however she feels, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. So, so, so that's the one thing. I think the second thing I wanted to pick up on is parenting stress, because I think for me, one of the things is it's very important, I always think, not to do too much comparison between different situations, because I think people in a couple have different types of stress. So, you know, they experience stress that someone on their own might not experience, but on your own, there are different types of stress that you might get from being in a couple. Um, one of my biggest types of advice is support network. So to minimize the amount of parenting stress is getting the best support network in place. And that's actually one of the reasons I'm in the middle of moving house to live closer to my parents because just having that additional support makes me feel like I can be the best parent I can be. Because sometimes you can feel parenting stress when you're on your own if you haven't got anyone to, um, you know to support you and I think a way to minimize that is to get that support network in place to to minimize that happening and I suppose the last point on that is I think that a lot of listeners are thinking shall I just try to meet someone and do this in a more traditional way or shall I go down this route and um one of the things that I always say is if you're going to meet somebody having a baby with someone that you've not long met and don't know too well could be hugely stressful and um, as if not more stressful as having a baby on your own and so to just think about it seems at the time, and I'm saying this from a place of, I was just thinking, if only I could just do this the, the traditional way, it would be easier. Only in hindsight do I categorically know it would not have been easier with someone who I'd not got a longer term relationship with. I think there would have been a whole heap of different stress that I would have been going through. So I want people to know it's not like the grass is greener. If you do it this way, it will be easier. There's pros and cons and there's stress of different types in different situations. But trying to minimise it, I think, is the key, no matter what your circumstances are. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, people have all different kinds of stress. And I suppose, you know, bringing up a child on your own, the stresses are, you know, just needing some time to yourself or, you know, I know I've just, I mean, I'm sure you have as well and you must have experienced just silly things like going out for a pint of milk and then you have to get the baby all dressed, you know, and you can't just hand the baby over or the child or do things spontaneously in that way. So these are the kinds of things the, the mums have taken part in our research say. And I think almost like your patient's bucket. So, you know, if, if you're just dealing with everything on your own, your bucket can sort of get quite low. And then if you've got some support, it fills back up again. And then you've got patients to deal with things again. So it's how you can keep that bucket a bit more filled by getting different support in to help you. But so then the key thing then from the research, you know, did anyone say that they felt like they would, 
detrimented because they didn't have a father in that family structure? Sometimes for the reason you've just touched on, having somebody else around to share with. So there's, um, there's a mum who um, I interviewed in the book and she talks about choosing a school for her child was a really big, important issue for her. And, you know, how she would talk about this to friends, but they had limited interest in it. So it was sort of these kinds of things. I wish I'd somebody who was also the parent of this child who would care so much, as much as I do, about these things. So, I mean, she articulated that very well, but it's other, other people, other mums did say similar things. Um, so I think it's, but having somebody else who cares as much as you do about your child, who will take, you know, the same level of interest than simply just friends who are being supportive or family yeah. members who are being supportive. Um, so I think that's something I've heard. And certainly a lot of mothers did say, you know, this isn't what I would necessarily have chosen for myself. And a lot of mothers also said, you know, perhaps they would meet somebody in the future. So not everybody, because, you know, some of the mums said, you know, I have no interest in doing that. And I'm perfectly happy as I am. And I mean, others, even though they were happy with the situation, some did say, well, you know, it would be nice. Um, it wasn't necessarily top of the agenda at the moment, but, you know, if that were to happen in the future, then it was seen as, as a nice thing. So there was a bit of a range really in how people felt about that. I, I've changed a little bit. I would have been firmly in the camp of this is not how I wanted to do it but on reflection in hindsight I wonder how good I would have been doing it in a partnership um I think I would have found different challenges so um I sort of changed my mind a little bit on it but I'm certainly open to meeting someone in the future as well I think a lot of the solo mums I speak to yeah it's not the be all and end all but they would most of them would be open to meeting someone like you say mm. and what about the children and um, from the children you've spoken to have they talked about not having a father in their lives um no so sophie zada who is somebody who has worked with me a lot she she now is in london university no longer in cambridge she did some really interesting work um talking to children about their feelings and one thing was certainly she was interested in were children interested in their donors young children and I think how old were they I need to send you this paper sorry I can't remember the details and what she found was that they weren't at all interested in the donor but some of them were more interested in the dad issue um so if they were you know had questions that's what it was about so it's almost like separating out the fact of being donor conceived and having that male figure in their life. Who yes. And the donor conceived side of it, certainly when they were quite young, was of no interest to them whatsoever. Okay, that's interesting. So yeah. from our point of view, what we can do is try to make sure we've got those good male role models in their lives where they feel like there's someone at least that they can go to in that situation. Yes, although, you know, people talk a lot about male role, role models. I'm not sure quite how much it really matters, but, um, you know, there's cer certainly no harm in giving children as wide experience as possible. Um, so 
you know, certainly not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but is it absolutely necessary? I'm not entirely sure about that. And was there any big surprises in your research? Like, what's the most surprising thing that you weren't expecting that you found? That's a very interesting question. I don't know. I always go into these studies with a really open mind. I suppose we go in looking at the issues that people have talked about, you know, the concerns people have. And because the concerns turned out to be unfounded, I actually wasn't surprised. You know, I thought, especially also for based on our previous research, where we've come to learn that, you know, children who've got close involved relationships with their parents, whether it's a single mom or mum and a dad or two mums or whatever, then these children do very well. Um, and I, so in a way, I, I didn't really expect it to be different. I expected these children to be completely fine. I suppose I was a little surprised about what the mothers were surprised about was just how young the children were when they began to ask about their dad. So certainly the ones, you know, who were still two, I was a bit surprised about that. But generally, I wasn't too surprised with the results. So for people who are considering embarking on this route to parenthood, mm. just based on what you have researched and what have you found and the people you've interacted with, do, would you have any particular advice um, to people who are considering whether this is the, the right route for them? I think, um, well, I mean, one thing is I think it's great that there are people like you around and people forming support groups. I would say just talk to as many people as possible. Find out what the actual experience is like and, you know, what the problems have been, what the pleasures have been. Get some tips on, you know, things that you haven't thought about and prepare well. I mean, generally the mothers that we had in our study. So these were all women who'd had children um, done a conception through a clinic. So I think probably it's different if, um, you know, a woman uses a website, something like that. But all the women in our study had gone through a clinic. They were all incredibly well prepared for having children. You know, they had, you know, some had changed jobs, some had moved neighborhood. They had thought long and hard. They made sure they were in a financially stable position all of these things. So, you know, they were really um, mums who were as well prepared as they could be. So I think that's the right way because I think it's, you know, it's really helped them. And now that, as you say, there are more and more um, mums in this situation, then there's more of a natural support group of people who are having the same experiences of you. So as you, I would say just, you know, get as much information as possible, talk to as many people as possible, talk to your family, you know, because a lot of the mums got a lot of support from their families. Their families weren't necessarily, you know, enthusiastic about the idea at the beginning, some of them, but, you know, our experience of studying families were you know, children aren't born in maybe the way that they were expected to be. Once the baby arrives, it completely changes everything. And even if grandparents did have reservations, they usually disappear the minute the child arrives. So, um, yeah, I just say preparation and information, get as much information as possible. Yeah, that I've, I've heard the same. People who have reservations, it rarely stays 
when there's when there's an actual child in the picture usually they, they change their minds then and then just one last topic about you mentioned about donor siblings um have you done any research on that so it's a it's a hot topic at the moment in the stalk and i community on should we at an early age be facilitating trying to find donor siblings so our children can know them from childhood um, or is that a choice that should be left to the children when they're old enough to make the decision have you got any thoughts or views on that um, well, so we, we have done a study. I think we did the first study of donor siblings. We worked with the donor sibling registry in the United States and we did a survey. This was quite a while ago now and I know other people have done things since, but we found that um, donor conceived, I mean, there were mainly children conceived by sperm donation, not egg donation. And we found that they, many of them, really really valued their relationship with their donor siblings and we didn't even really we hadn't even thought about donor siblings when we started this you know we were interested in where they interested in their donors what happened when they tried to contact their donor and these kinds of questions and what we found is that yes many of them were interested in finding out about the donor possibly even meeting him but they didn't see the donor as their father well a few did but the large majority didn't and but what really interested the children more in terms of long-lasting relationships was the relationship with the donor siblings because they were finding you know other people who were in many ways like them they looked a bit like them they may have had similar interests and that kind of thing but also they were the same age you know or often similar age and many of the children were only children so actually finding a sibling was really exciting and a positive thing and that many of them formed you know really strong bonds and you know stay in touch and so on i mean not always like always there's a huge variation but you know for a lot of children they formed really you know lasting positive relationships with their donor siblings so for some children or young adults this can be a very nice thing the age at which this should begin to happen i don't know i don't know of any studies that have looked at this you know because i suppose now certainly if we're thinking about the uk that you know now that the law has changed that children grow up and they will be able to find out their donor and they have also have the potential to find out who their donor siblings are we don't know yet how that's going to pan out um, and whether it's a good thing when this happens when they were, were young. I mean, I don't know. I don't see why not if it's something, you know, that turns out if they meet their donor siblings and get on with them, then that can, I'm sure it can be a very nice thing. Yeah. I spoke um, to the European Sperm Bank last week and um, the CEO there was telling me that they're considering how to facilitate this in a more controlled way so that people who are trying to find siblings don't accidentally find the donor when that's not what they were really setting out for which i think is a hugely positive thing if the sperm banks will help facilitate that to happen in a in a yeah like in a, in a more controlled way i think that's a hugely positive step um, yes yes so i mean it seems to me it can be a very good thing yeah. um but i just don't have any experience of it I think I read, I'm not sure if it was in your book, I read it somewhere that um, 
the some of them called it like their squad and I loved that I think oh it's yes yes that's what, that was in my book yes yeah. so this, nice. that was interesting she um yes she was lovely teenager and she hadn't actually met any of her donor siblings yet but she was hoping to look for them when she I think she was when about 15 when I spoke to her and she was hoping to start looking for them when she was 18 but she still had this idea of them that they would be out there and she was looking forward to meeting them one day and she talked about them as her squad that was really sweet I thought fantastic oh so interesting I could speak to you all day about the research you've done if people want to find out more about what you've done and your work and your research where should they head to um well actually it's all in the book because the reason I wrote the book was to get the research sort of out there to a more general audience and because it's just come out it's very up to date so as well as all the chapters on these different family forms. If people want to read more about specific studies, they are all listed at the back, every single one of them. Um, I mean, they could also look at the website of the Centre for Family Research because a lot of our publications are listed there. But all the ones that are relevant to the kinds of families we've been talking about today, they're all in the book. So people, if they want to delve a bit deeper, can find out. But otherwise, you know, I, I didn't, put all of that in the book because I don't want it to be an academic book but it's all there for people who want to find out more. You've done all the hard work for us you've consolidated it into a nice easy to read package I love it and you mentioned at the beginning that you were going back you just finished the 21 year olds yes what are you planning to do with that will that be another paper or will it it will. so we haven't actually finished it yet we're in the middle of it we're about halfway through and we're hoping that we'll have seen, because we're seeing the parents and the young adults. So it's quite a big exercise. And of course, because of COVID, this is all, we usually visit people, you know, face to face, but it's all now gone online. So we're hoping that we'll have finished interviewing everybody by the summer. And then we'll obviously have to you know, analyze all the data. So we'll ha we hope to have some findings by the end of the year end of this year and then it will come out in academic papers excellent we look forward and they will be on the on the center for family research website when they come out yes Brilliant. oh thank you so much for your time really really fascinating and helpful for so many i'm sure well thank you it's been lovely to speak to you and thank you for your interest in the book and in the research if you've enjoyed this episode of the stalk and i podcast i'd hugely appreciate if you rate, review and subscribe. I look forward to seeing you again next week.